Well, hopefully you're still in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. That's our text this morning. Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. It's a unique text, uh, unique in the sense that uh, this is the only glimpse that we get of our Lord and Savior when he's a young one, when he's a, uh, soon to be a teenager, he's 12 years old. Uh, there's no other account in any other Gospels uh, that talk about what his life was like uh, between his birth and uh, the beginning of his public ministry. Uh, this is the only text, uh, that, and it's a short text, a brief text, that kind of reveals a little bit of what, uh, what it was like to raise uh, the Lord Jesus Christ for Mary and Joseph. Presumably, uh, there are many other things that Luke or Matthew or Mark or John could have written about his upbringing, but they chose not to uh, by direction of the Holy Spirit. The question upon us then is, why this text, right? Why this story? Why this one and not some other one? What's, what's the point? What's the big deal about this event uh, where they actually lose Jesus and they find him and, and hear about his mission, surprisingly finding him at the temple? Why this text, right? Why this event in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ? What can we learn from it this morning? And, and why are, are, are Jesus' first recorded words those which we find in verse 4? 49, where it says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Those are Jesus' first recorded words. Why share that with us? Why this text? And I think the question that this text is answering for us this morning is, who is Jesus and why does it matter? Who is Jesus and why does it matter? So as we look at the text, we see from verse 40 and 41 that his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. So every year, Joseph and Mary would travel roughly 80 miles south from Nazareth to Jerusalem. They would travel in the company of a caravan, probably a very large caravan, uh, which provided safety and it also provided fellowship for them. So every year they would make this trip uh, for the Feast of the Passover. It's most likely a three to four day journey of roughly 20 to 25 miles each day. Uh, so that's, that's the trip that they're making. They're making this in obedience to the, to the law, to the scriptures. Uh, it says in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16, uh, God says to his people Israel, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, the feast of unleavened bread, the feast of weeks, and the feast of booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. And so Mary and Joseph are in obedience to the law. This is one of those three prescribed uh, trips for uh, the Jewish uh, individuals to make back to Jerusalem and celebrating uh, these festivals. In particular, again, our text is the Passover. And the Passover is linked to uh, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover was just a one-day event. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was a seven-day event. 
Uh, so in total, uh, depending on how you want to track it, this is a seven or eight day festival uh, that they're traveling to in Jerusalem. It was celebrated on the 15th of, by their calendar reckoning, the month of Nisan, N-I-S-A-N, which for us corresponds to late March, early April. So it's kind of neat that we're picking Luke back up and we're picking it up uh, in a roughly similar time uh, for them calendar-wise. Now remember, the Passover commemorates how God uh, delivered his people from bondage in Egypt. Uh, remember from that historical account back in Exodus that on that fateful night, the angel of death struck down all the firstborn of Egypt. But when that angel of death, or the destroyer as he's referenced, uh, comes upon the Israelite homes, their firstborn are untouched. Their firstborn are untouched because on the doorpost was smeared the blood of the Passover lamb. And so that's why it's called the Passover, because the, the angel of death, the destroyer, would see that blood smeared on the doorpost of the Israelites' homes, and that angel would then pass over that household. And so the Israelites were saved by faith in the blood of the lamb. And so that's, that's the Passover, and it's foreshadowing Christ. And every year, uh, families would go up to Jerusalem to commemorate the Passover, an estimated anywhere from 100,000 to 200,000 Jewish, fam- Jewish individuals would make their way to Jerusalem. So it would swell from a typical a population of 25,000 uh, to anywhere as to two to 250,000. That's a big difference. <laughs> it's a very big difference. Mid to late afternoon on the 15th day of Nisan, the, the Passover lamb would be slain. Uh, the families would gather together at sundown and they would consume the entire animal. This time, again, Mary and Joseph have been doing this every year. This time, Jesus is with them. That's what our text says, right? Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. Uh, we're not sure if this is Jesus' first time going, or if he goes every time. It uh, seems uh, possible that it's his first time uh, that he travels with them. He's 12 years old. He's, by Jewish reckoning thus, he's, he's on the brink of adulthood. Uh, by Jewish reckoning, you become an adult at the age of 13 uh, when you do what's called the bar mitzvah. I'm sure you've heard of that before. It just simply means the son of the commandment. And Jewish tradition would have it that when this young man would turn 13, that then the parents would start taking him to the temple. And our text says he's 12. And Jewish tradition seems to be that kind of like a trial run, uh, when uh, the young man would turn 12, they would take him a year ahead of time to kind of get him oriented and used to doing this. So that appears to be what's happening in our text. And with all that in, in your mind, I would just encourage you to take a moment, try, try and picture the scene in your mind's eye. Try and imagine uh, the scene uh, that's here in our text. Jerusalem is, is bustling with activity. Again, 100 to 200,000 more people than normal. Also, the, the streets would be filled with the sounds of thousands and thousands of sheep. Uh, more than likely, uh, you have an increased Roman army presence uh, to keep the peace. 
And here's Jesus, who's 12 years old. Uh, he most likely would have gone to the temple to pray and to sing psalms. On the night of the Passover, he would have worshipped with his family. On the night of the Passover, he uh, would have seen his father prepare the sacrificial lamb. Think about that one for a second, huh? He is the sacrificial lamb, ultimately. And here's a 12-year-old boy. He watches his father preparing that sacrificial lamb. And that night, after it's prepared and the family gathers, the father would have rehearsed that gospel story of how the Lord delivered uh, Israel from Egyptian bondage, of how the angel passed over the firstborn of Israelites. And remember, Jesus is the firstborn son of Mary and Joseph, right? For him, the angel of death is not going to pass over him. For him, death is coming, isn't it? He is uh, the one who will shed his blood on the cross for our sin, that we might be saved by his blood. It's quite the text. It's quite the text. Well, the, the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it, it comes to an end. Seven, eight days later, it's finished. It's time to start making that journey. It's inner Texas as going down. That's just because Jerusalem's on a hill. Really, they were going up. They were going to north, uh, to Nazareth. Again, a three- to four-day journey. They begin that. However, it seems in, in the flurry of Passover activities and unbeknownst to Mary and Joseph that they start heading north. They start going back. But, but Jesus, he doesn't. Uh, Jesus, uh, for reasons we don't know entirely, uh, lags behind. He stays in Jerusalem. Uh, no doubt, uh, Mary and Joseph supposed uh, that Jesus was in the caravan. Uh, we think uh, that the tradition was uh, that the moms and the young children would be in the front of that caravan, and at the back of that caravan would be the dad uh, with the older children. Remember, Jesus is 12 years old. He could go either with mom up in the front with the younger children, or he could go with dad in the back with the older children. So it's not uh, beyond, uh, I don't know, craziness to think that Mary thought, oh, he's with Joseph. And Joseph thought, oh, he's with Mary. And they come to the end of maybe they've gone 20, 25 miles uh, nighttime is coming. It's not safe to travel at nighttime. So they camp. It's, it's sundown. <laughs> Where's Jesus? Right? He's MIA. Uh, he's missing in action. Uh, that, that, that truth just begins to dawn on them. And I, I don't know if you've ever had a child get lost. You can identify with the fear uh, that started to, to probably fill their hearts. I think I've shared with you before that it wasn't too long ago uh, that we lost Titus. Uh, it was, and if you know Titus, that's just shocking, right? Uh, but we, we were at Myers, and it was Christmas, we were Christmas shopping. I thought Titus was with Val. Val thought Titus was with me. Uh, she comes back to me. She finds me where I am. We're both like, where's Titus? We had no idea. Uh, and so for about 10 minutes of terror, which felt like about 10 hours of terror, oh my word, where's Titus? And during those 10 minutes, your mind just races, right? 
sometimes are the worst imaginable thing. And that's, that, that, that happened to us. And again, that was 10 minutes. Vail's Vail's the smart one. She finds some Meyer person and they do some code and suddenly you see all of them go flying and they found him. He was heading, he was heading towards the exit. Uh, so thankfully they found him. But those, those 10 minutes of terror are nothing compared to Mary and Joseph, who for three days, they don't know where Jesus is, right? They've gone a whole day north. Now they need to make a whole day trip back. And then when they're in Jerusalem, it takes them a whole day to find him, right? Uh, so that must have been terrifying for them, a very, very difficult time for them. They're, they're great fear within their hearts. But they head back to Jerusalem on that third day. That, like I said, they find him in the temple. He's sitting in the midst of the teachers uh, within the temple. Uh, it was tradition at that time that uh, at the conclusion of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a number of uh, scholars or theologians would hang back and begin to teach some of their theological insights within the temple, and their students would come and sit at their feet and, and listen from them and learn from them. And Jesus does that. Jesus hangs back at the temple. He's sitting at their feet. Uh, it says in our text that the, those scholars, those, those teachers were amazed, astonished, at his teaching, his, his understanding of the scriptures, uh, the wisdom that he had. Uh, so again, Jesus is among them, astonishing everyone. Mary and Joseph find him. They are not astonished. They are exasperated, right? They are exasperated. And again, if you can just put yourself in their shoes and, and be very, very honest, just imagine your growing concern of three days trying to find your son, and, and searching everywhere, and their fears are intensifying, the, and I'm sure your mind is, is all over the place with things. And then, then when you find him, how would you react if your, your son was seemingly aloof to the fact that you've been looking for him, and he's in the, the temple discussing theology? Admit it, I think you'd be angry. I'd be angry. I'd be overjoyed and angry at the same time, right? That's, that's what I think is going on with them. And so Mary, I think, scolds her son, saying, son or child, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. That's verse 48. Great distress. The word, therefore, distress can also be translated anguish, torment, pain, that kind of idea. That's, that's what they've been going through, uh, trying to find their lost son. And Jesus' reply is remarkable. Verse 49, this is, this is the crux of the narrative. This, this is the key interpretive verse. Verse 49, Jesus' response to that is to say, why were you looking for me? Right? Why, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? That's quite the verse. And like I said, it's, it's the key verse to unlocking why Luke shares this historical event in the life of Jesus. And it's answering that question, who is Jesus and why does it matter? And it's showing that Jesus at the age of 12, he knew his mission he knew what he was supposed to be doing. He was conscious 
of the calling and the mission that the Father had given him. Notice two things about verse 49 that demand our attention. Notice first, he says, did you not know that I must, I must be in my Father's house? It can also be translated, it is necessary. It is necessary, it had to be. The fact is that Jesus' entire life is marked by, or controlled by, this divine must. We're going to find it lots of times through Luke. Let me just trace, trace that with you. Luke chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. In chapter 13, verse 33, Jesus says, I must go on my way. In, 19, in chapter 19, verse 5, he says to uh, the wee little short guy, right? Zechariah? Zacharias? He says, I must stay at your house today. In 22, uh, verse 37, Jesus says, I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Chapter 24, verse 7, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And lastly, Luke chapter 24, verse 44, right at the end of the book, every, Jesus says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. See that emphasis on must, this, this divine mission, it, it's necessary, it has to be that Jesus does this. And he says in our verse, verse 49, I must be in my father's house. Even at the age of 12, Jesus understands his mission. At the age of 12, he's moved by this divine compulsion to do the father's will. He submitted to the Father's will. The second thing I want you to see about verse 49 is that he says he's the Son of God. Because he says, I must be where? In my Father's house. There's a subtle, there's a subtle emphasis difference there because Mary walks in in verse 48 and says, Behold, your father and I, you can hear that, right? Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress, great, distress, great anguish, great torment. And Jesus' response is to say, I must be in my father's house. So Mary is emphasizing your earthly father, Joseph. And Jesus is saying, no, there's a greater priority here. I must be about my father, my heavenly father's business. I must be in my father's house. And honestly, today, we don't bat an eye when someone refers to God the Father as my father, right? But what you need to understand culturally and contextually is no one ever, until Jesus shows up on the scene, ever referred to the heavenly father as my father. That didn't happen. They would often refer to him as our Father, thinking as a, an, a national terms, but even people like Abraham and Moses and David, who I think you would agree were very, very close to God the Father, 
They never, you can, you can make your way through the Old Testament, they never refer to him as my father. And so Jesus, to say that, uh, to just kind of say like it's the most natural thing in the world is significant. Uh, he's saying that God is his father. He's saying that he is the son of God, which is to say he is fully God. That he is fully God. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the son of God on a mission for his heavenly father. He must be in his father's house. That's who Jesus is. And nothing was going to get in his way. Nothing was going to stop him from fulfilling the mission as the son of God that he had. His heavenly father's work demanded his first attention. His relationship to his heavenly father, catch this, his, his relationship to his heavenly father takes precedence over his relationship to his earthly mom and dad. He was going to do whatever the father wanted him to do, regardless of how much it might have hurt his mom and dad, earthly, or confused them. That's something else, isn't it? This means, just to kind of summarize that, that when Jesus was at the temple, he was right where he was supposed to be. He was not sinning, he was not disobeying, he was exactly where God the Father wanted him to be, and he was exactly where he wanted to be. Later, Jesus will say in John chapter 6, verse 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And he'll also say, just a couple chapters after that in John 8, 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to my Father. That's, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He was always doing his Father's work, always submitting to his Father's will, even at the age of 12. It was this wholehearted obedience that leads him to the cross. And if you remember, just hours before his sacrificial death on the cross for our sins, he says to God in the garden in prayer, not my will, but what? Your will be done. By the way, the fact that Jesus has this this all-consuming mission uh, to please the Father and to obey his heavenly Father, that hasn't changed. The fact that he's up in heaven, uh, he's still about his Father's business. Up, up in heaven, he's, he's right now uh, praying for us, interceding for us. He's seated at the right hand of God, bringing all things into submission to his Father. Uh, he's watching over us. Jesus is still about his Father's business. And so who is Jesus? He's the Son of God. What difference does that make? Everything. That makes every difference in the world. If, if you're here this morning and just wondering, what difference does it make that Jesus is the Son of God on, on a mission for the Father? The significance of that is, first and foremost, that you can have that same relationship with the Father that he has. That he's the Son of God and he's able to call upon his Heavenly Father and say, my Heavenly Father, my Father, I must be about my Father's business. Did you know that this morning you can have that same relationship with God the Father. You can call upon him and know him as your heavenly father and be able to call upon him and say, my heavenly father. 
That's possible because of the work that the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross. The scriptures teach that because of our sin, we were disobedient sons and daughters. But Jesus is the obedient son who acts on our behalf. And by faith in him and faith alone, we are given this right relationship with the Father and can call the God of the universe my Father. That's the significance of him being the Son of God. That's that's why it matters, because of his work on the cross as the obedient Son. You can know him as your heavenly Father. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, To all who did receive him, let's talk about Jesus, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Are you a child of God this morning? Have you by faith trusted in his perfect atoning sacrifice on the cross for your sins? Are you by faith trusting in him and him alone? The scriptures very, very clearly say if you receive him, if you believe in his name, he gives you the right to be a child of God. Are you trusting in Jesus alone this morning? as your rescuer from sin, as the lamb, the sacrificial lamb who bore our sins, our penalty on the cross. If you're not, you can right now. Right now you can trust in him. Today you can be a child of God, a daughter of God, a son of God by faith. You don't have to wait till you grow up. You don't have to wait. In fact, it's foolish to wait. Call upon him now, believe in his name, see him as the sacrificial lamb, see him as the firstborn who takes the penalty for your sin and mine, trust in him, believe upon him, and be able to call upon him as my father. What a gift that's available to any of us who will right now receive that by faith. What difference does it make if you do receive him by faith? Again, it makes every difference in the world. Jesus was uh, committed. He centered his life upon the will of the Father. He had this unique, intimate relationship with the Father, and he put that relationship first in his life. So if you're here this morning and you're saying, I am a child of God, I have received him by faith, I am trusting in him and him alone, what that means for you is, just like Jesus is on mission and he's centered and focused and passionate about the Father's will and the Father's business, then you as a child of God, as a daughter of God or a son of God, you should have that same passion you should have that same drive you should be that focused on the father's will as as a child of God Jesus all consuming passion should be your passion it should fill and flood your hearts and you say well what does that look like what does it look like for someone to be all in to be to be following the Lord that way I have four, four thoughts on that that I think we, we can pull from the text. And if you're taking notes, it's on the flip side of those notes, and it's fill in the blank. I wasn't as nice as I normally am this week. I put fill in the blank. just want to make sure you're actually paying attention. <clears throat> so the first, first way you can know that you're all in, kind of a, a, a test to kind of see if you're uh, focused on the mission uh, like, our, like our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ was, is I think it entails a commitment to the Word of God. What's it mean to be all in? What's it mean to be committed? What's it mean to be uh, having an all-out passion for, for the Father? I think it begins with a very active interest in the Word of God. I say that because where do they find Jesus? They find him in the temple at the feet of the, the current theologians talking about and discussing what? 
Scripture, right? Jesus, at the age of 12, has a, a deep hunger for spiritual truth. And so the question comes to, to you and to me is, do you have that same hunger for spiritual truth? Are you daily digging into God's Word? I would ask you, how can you be about the Father's business if you're not regularly reading His revealed will to you in the Scriptures, right? How can you be growing into relationship with Him if you're not daily in the Word and hungering and thirsting after the Word? How can you find strength? Let me put it that way. How can you find strength to do the Father's will if you're not daily in His Word? Because this isn't just something that you kind of check the box off. No, this strengthens you. This refreshes you. This, this empowers you. I really like to, to use the illustration. I use it all the time when I'm counseling uh, with, with my, my phone. I, of course, have my tablet up here. But if I don't plug my phone or tablet in overnight, it what? It dies, right? I can, I can push it and mash it and do every, everything I want on it, but if there's no power in it, it can't do what it's made to do. That's true of us spiritually. If you're not daily digging into God's Word and meditating on it and memorizing it and, and letting it sift and, and penetrate deep into your heart and life, then you're like that phone. It's, it's losing the power. You need to plug into God's Word and be strengthened and refreshed that you might do what He calls you to do. The Scriptures don't just tell you how to live. The Scriptures empower you to live that life. And so if you're going to live a committed life to the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and to the Father, it begins with a very active interest in the Word of God. Th th think about it this way. This might be an ouch instead of an amen. Uh, but if you are or were as interested in the Scriptures as you are about maybe the latest political story, or what else, the latest celebrity scandal, or the latest sports news, if you spend as much time digging into that as you do this, how much would you be growing spiritually? How much more would you be growing spiritually? A second thing to think about as far as what does this commitment to the Father look like, I think it's a commitment that's willing to risk causing pain. It's a commitment that's also willing to risk confusion. I say it's a commitment that's, that's willing to risk causing pain because Jesus goes to the Father's temple. His parents leave. They're in torment, right? Where, where is our son? Did he know it would cause them that anguish? He did, didn't he? But he's committed to the cause that the Father has for him, even if it means temporarily the fear and the anguish of his earthly mom and dad. And even if it confuses them, look, look, look at verse 50. It's an amazing verse. I, I spent a lot of time just trying to think through it. Where it says about Mary and Joseph, they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Isn't that interesting? Jesus has spoken to them about, you know, he's the son of God, he's on a mission for his father, and Mary and Joseph, they don't get it. It's like, what? They're confused. So I think a commitment to the Father's mission, the Father's will, sometimes it will cause confusion uh, for the people in our lives. And again, that's, we're not trying to do that. We're not, well, that's not our goal. We're not trying to cause pain and, and confusion, but it may just very well be the result of following hard after God. If you follow hard after God, I'm sure you've experienced it. Lots of times people look at you like you're crazy, right? I'll never forget 
Uh, when I was 17, 18, I got saved when I was 17. When the Lord was gracious to me, opened my eyes, showed me my sin, uh, and, and I placed my faith in him. Uh, at that point in my life, I was very, very heavy, very, very serious about basketball. Uh, you wouldn't be able to tell that from looking at me now, uh, but I, I lived for basketball. Um, you would always find me uh, across the street. There was a park across the street. I would, I would play for hours on end. Uh, and for whatever reason, I was, I, was, I was fairly decent at it. I had a couple NCAA schools looking at me. Uh, and my grandpa, who was unsaved, I don't know if he ever put his faith in Christ. I, I hope he did. Uh, but at that point, especially in his life, I know he's not a believer. And uh, he wanted to pay for me to go to some pretty fancy basketball camps where all the scouts go. Uh, I told my grandpa, thanks, but no thanks. I believe the Lord's called me into pastoral ministry, and so I'm going to a, 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 a Christian school, Baptist Bible College, over in Clark Summit, Pennsylvania. That, that's my commitment. That's what I think the Lord is calling me to do, and he thought I was crazy. I'll never forget kind of the look on his face, like, you're doing what? Why wouldn't you pursue this? It caused him a lot of confusion. I can also remember when I was 17, I came to faith in Christ. It was over the summer, my first day back of school. Uh, I, it took me a week or two, but I lost most of my friends. I didn't lose them because I was some kind of jerk or trying to ram the Bible down their throat. I, I lost my friendship with them because priorities changed. Our values changed. We weren't living for the same thing anymore. And they thought it was strange that I wouldn't laugh at the jokes they tell in the locker room. They thought it was strange that I, I wouldn't do the drugs that a lot of them were doing, especially marijuana at that time. It confused them. What's wrong with you? Why won't you do that? It's just fun. It's just whatever. When you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, when you commit to him and, and, and your zeal, your passion is, is living for the Father, some people are going to be hurt by it. Some people are going to be confused by it. That's reality. And, and you stay focused on that. You stay focused on him because pleasing him, his will is your food. It's your energy. It's, it's your strength. The third uh, aspect of this commitment, I believe, is it's a commitment that is prior prioritized over earthly relationships. Not only is it a hunger for God's word, uh, not only is it uh, willing to risk uh, causing others pain and confusion, uh, but it's a commitment that is prior prioritized over earthly relationships. Again, I say that because Jesus goes to the temple to obey his heavenly father. His, he loves Mary and Joseph, but his priority, his precedence, is to do the Father's will over and above what his mom and dad will. He's committed to the Father. Again, we must love our family members, but love for Jesus takes precedence. And of course, it doesn't mean that we're rude and inconsiderate. Look, look at verse 51. Uh, Mary and Joseph don't understand it, but verse 51, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was what? Submissive to them. That's everyone's favorite word, right? Yeah. Submission. <laughs> uh, submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. I, I love that phrase. You find that a few times in Luke. Uh, I think verse 51 is in there for a couple of reasons. One, there's some people, I think, who read Luke 2, 41 through 52, and they think Jesus sinned. And so Luke, by inspiration of the Spirit, throws that in there to say, no, 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 he doesn't sin, he's submissive. But I think 
uh, that's also in there to teach us something very valuable, that part of living a, a godly life, part of being committed to the Father, is being uh, submitted to the authority he puts over us, so long as that doesn't go against his ultimate will, which takes precedence. I think that's a very important thing. I, I, I think I could preach a whole message off, off verse 51. I'm not going to do that for you this morning. I won't, I won't torture you that way. Uh, but I think it has a great message for us today because... Man, our world, our society hates anything to do with authority, unless I'm the authority, right? If you're the authority, it's all good, but someone else, no way. But verse 52 shows us that one way to honor and live a godly life in obedience to the Father is to uh, be in submission to those who God the Father puts in authority over you. Everyone submits to someone, Right? As Christians, we are called to submit to those God puts over us. So the question would be, are you praying for your leaders? Are, are you praying for your teachers? Are you praying for your parents? Are you speaking honorably about those God has placed over you? When you're at your workplace, do you speak honorably about your boss? Do you work in a way that brings glory to the Father? Are you putting God first in every relationship? Now, the fourth, the fourth aspect of this commitment to the Father is that it never ends until you die. It's a lifelong commitment. I say that because of verse 52. Verse 52 says, Jesus, I mean, it's a, it's a mind-boggling verse. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Just thinking about that verse, the thought that challenged me is, if the Lord Jesus' growth was so important to him, how much more important should it be to me and to you? Right? And also, again, think about, think about Mary and Joseph. Uh, they, they have a hard time getting this. They have a hard time understanding this. They, they didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to just turn to and read at any, any chance that they could. They, they didn't have those gospel accounts. So for them, this is like putting together a puzzle without the box, without the picture, right? And so it's like little by little over time, they're, they're putting in the pieces uh, without that box to look at, and they're slowly kind of getting it. But it wasn't always clear to them. Uh, but over time, they get it more and more and more. You see them growing in their understanding, right? Just like we need to be growing in our understanding. Again, even more so because we have the picture for the puzzle pieces, right? We, we have the big idea. We know where God is going and what he is doing. And, and if I could just throw this out there as a side note. Mary and Joseph, they had an angelic message, right? If you flash back to Luke 1, telling them the significance of who this son is that's growing in Mary's womb, right? They've been told that. They've been given this angelic message. And yet, they struggle to understand and comprehend all that's happening. Now, I share that. I bring that up to say, you and I, we need to be patient with others. Because if Mary and Joseph, because remember, we're talking about this lifelong commitment to grow, right? So if, if Mary and Joseph, who are raising God in the flesh, and they've had angelic messages, they're struggling to get it. It takes them a little while to get it. Then it's going to take us quite a bit to get it. We need to be patient with others when they don't quite get it as fast as you think they should get it, right? I think, I think there's a lesson there about patience and understanding and people when they don't get it the first time around. So all that to say, as a child of God, 
Are you diligently engaged in the Father's business? As, as you think about those four things that we just walked through, can it be said of you that you have this unswerving commitment uh, to do the purpose, God's purpose above all else? Can you say with Jesus, I must, I must do this? Do you have that unswerving commitment? When, when, I, when I pastored up in Newberry, and I was there for, for 10 years or so, my, my first year there, I did 12 funerals. I thought, what'd you do, Lord? You sent me up here to, to bury this church. What's, what's, what's going on? Uh, but I bring that up to share the hardest funerals that I've done over the years are the ones where when we inquire into their spiritual condition, their spiritual relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and the response is, I don't know. I don't know what his relationship was with the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if he had any relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's awful. Those are the worst funerals to do. It's an awful situation. And I, I raise that up to say, to ask you this morning, do people know that you are following God? If people are, are, were to follow you throughout the day and people who live alongside you, like your, 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 your spouse or your children or your workplace, would they know by the way you act and talk and, and all those things that you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Would they know that you're committed? Would they believe you when you say, I must do the Father's business? Would they? Would, would they be compelled by the life that you live? I, I think, is there evidence there? I think that's important to ask yourself, to think about very deeply, to let that kind of sink deep into your heart. And it also gives you something to aim for. Am, am I about the Father's business? Does God have first priority in my life, or am I just playing games? I think a lot of people are playing games. Are you focused? Are, can you say, I must I must be about my father's business. Are you all in? That's what this text is challenging you with. Who is Jesus? He's the son of God. He's about his father's business. Are you a son of God? Are you a child of God by faith? Are you about your father's business? Are you all in? You see, that's the challenge of this text. And I hope you can see how as parents, how that this should be a, a deep commitment that you have for your children. That every year, it says in, our, in verse 41 and 42, that every year Joseph and Mary would make this trip to Jerusalem. And that's no small deal, right? It's three days to get there. Then they're there for seven or eight days. Then it's three days to get back. That's half a month. Half a month of leaving your business behind. Right? What a commitment from Mary and Joseph to establish this pattern of honoring God. They, they set Jesus an example of being these godly, devout parents. I think as parents, there's a challenge there. We need to do the same. That we need to train our children in the things of the Lord. That we are not to, quote, let your children decide for themselves. That we are given a, a mandate to train our children in the things of the Lord, to equip them, to train them to read their Bibles, to train them how to pray, to train them how to put God first in everything, to train them to be committed in the local church, uh, there, there's this old joke that was going around Facebook years ago. It just always sticks in my mind because it resonated with me. Again, I didn't get saved until I was 17. My mom and dad, my dad was a pastor. Every Sunday, they dragged me to church. In fact, the way how the joke goes on Facebook is my parents drugged me, right? They, every Sunday, they, they drugged me to church. They drugged me to this. They drugged me to this. They, I mean, it's terrible English, but it's dragged. But anyways, as parents, they drugged me. And lots of times, I hated it. And I would fight them tooth and nail. But you know what I do now? 
I praise them for it. And I thank them for it. Uh, they were being a Mary and Joseph, even though there are days and times where I didn't like and appreciate the fact that they were uh, training me in that way. Sometimes I, because I get it, I know we have three kids, parenting is hard, parenting is difficult, it's tiring, it's exhausting, it's frustrating at times, it's filled with anxieties and fears. We might want to say something like, I don't want to fight with my children about church, I don't want to fight with them over church. I would just ask you, if you're not willing to fight for their spiritual well-being, what are you willing to fight for? Right? And if you can put something else in there that you're willing to fight for, you're willing to fight about this and argue about this with them, but not about church, you need to repent and start fighting for their spiritual welfare. Focus on their spiritual welfare. Yes, we want our children to be healthy. We want them to have a good education. That's all good and right. But your chief concern as a parent is their spiritual welfare and well-being. Training them up in the things of the Lord. And just to keep going with that thought, God may be leading your children in a way that is very painful to you, right? Maybe confusing to you. Nevertheless, it's his sovereign will. We should not stand in the way of our children following God. God may raise your children up to be missionaries and, and send them to place that scares you like crazy and fills you with anxiety and fear. Your children might make decisions for the Lord that you don't fully understand that causes you pain, but don't get in the way of that. Trust God with your children. He loves them more than you do. He knows what he's doing with them more than you do and I do. Don't stand in the way of your children choosing to do hard things for the glory of God. I, I try and say this fairly often. I, I would rather, I would rather that my children live halfway across the globe serving the Lord than living right next to me living self-serving lives. That's not what I want for my children. I don't want them to have like this so-called great American life. I want them to live for God. That to be his deep, their deepest passion and thrill and desire. And I think that's right as a parent. And, and as parents, we should follow Mary and Joseph and train our children up in the things of the Lord. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God. He is fully God, and he was on a mission to do the will of the Father. What difference does that make? That makes every difference in the world. If you grant that Jesus is the Son of God, everything else is a logical outflow. All else that Jesus said and did is reasonable and rational. But if you reject this truth, if you reject the truth that Jesus is the Son of God, then you must reject Jesus entirely. So I ask you, who is Jesus to you? Is he the Son of God? Who is Jesus? Who do you think he is? Why does it matter? Again, the answer to that question will determine your eternal destiny and it will change your life forever in the here and, here and now. Who is Jesus to you? Is he the son of God? The answer to the identity of Christ determines your identity. I tried to bring that out last week. Last week. If, if the answer to the identity of Jesus is he's the son of God, that determines your identity. If you by faith are trusting in Jesus as the Son of God, you also are a child or, or son or, or daughter of God. But if you're not believing in Jesus, the Son of God, Scripture doesn't mince words. Scripture says you're a child of Satan. Which one are you this morning? 
Are you a child of, of God? Are you a child of the devil? If you say you're a child of God, what difference has Jesus made in your life? Are you all in for Jesus? Or are you all in for self? Jesus held nothing back. He's called you and I to do the same. He's called you to do the same whether you're 10 years old or 110 years old. You're never too late, never too early to start following the Lord Jesus Christ. So I would just ask you to wrestle with this today. Think about this even right now. Are you all in? What's the next step you need to take to be all in? How, how can you grow in your obedience to the Father's will? Maybe as parents, you need to diligently teach your children the things of the Lord. Maybe you've been lazy there. Maybe you haven't been doing it. You just can kind of letting it happen. I don't know. Maybe as parents, you need to let your children go and let them do big, hard things for God. Maybe it's something as simple as, you know, I haven't been reading the Bible very much. I say I'm all in, but I haven't been in his word. Maybe that's the decision that you need to make today is, I'm going to be all in, and that means I'm in God's word every day. Maybe your prayer life has been struggling. You need to pray more. Maybe your marriage is struggling. Maybe you have more questions about how to be a child of God. Maybe your next step is baptism. You're, you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you've never been baptized. What's, what's that next step for you as you seek to be all in, as you seek to obey the Father's mission, as you say, I must? Maybe it's membership. Maybe it's time to join Orangeville Baptist Church and be all in with what God is doing here. Maybe it's working hard for God's glory at your workplace. Maybe you've been complaining a lot at your workplace. What do you need to do to be all in? Maybe the Lord's convicting you this morning and you're like, you know what, my zeal has waned. I've just been going through the motions. You need to go to him and confess that to him and, and, and find his strength and his grace and his mercy, his forgiveness there. What's your next step? Maybe you know what the next step is and it scares you to death. Whatever it is, we want to help you. We want to encourage you. So I'm going to invite uh, the praise team uh, to come up as we're singing that song, as we always do. We have uh, counselors available to my right and counselors available to my left. Uh, in fact, if, if Chuck and Penny, if you could go that way to my left. Uh, so the idea with that is, again, if, if you're struggling or if you want to be all in, if you have questions about that, or there's steps you need to take, you need wisdom, you need, you need direction, maybe you just need pray, prayer, that's what these counseling rooms are for. Uh, so I invite you as, as we sing these songs, and even after we sing the songs, they hang out in there for a few minutes. Uh, you can join them in there, uh, pray with them, get counsel from them, seek the Lord. Or if you want to talk later in the week, don't hesitate to call or email or Facebook or whatever. Uh, we want to talk, we want to help, encourage you in any way we can. So that you can say, I must, I must be about my father's business. This is what he's calling me to do. How can we help you with that? Amen?